almost any mental health provider, if you listen to their outgoing voicemail, their follow-up instructions are, if you're having an emergency, hang up and call 911. But most places, because of ongoing stigma about people with mental illness, that call often gets coded at the 911 call-taking level as being a police problem or a law enforcement problem. The U.S. mental health care system is facing an emergency. Patients in crisis are spending hours, days, or even weeks waiting for psychiatric treatment in emergency settings. So how do we respond? And who exactly responds? Is a mental health emergency a police problem, a paramedic problem, both, or none of the above? We didn't know the answer to this question, so we called on a few experts. I'm Sanya Ali. And I'm Avni Kulkarni. This is While We Wait, a podcast series where we tackle the mental health boarding crisis. Through the series, we will explore our fragmented mental health care system in the United States. Boarding is another word for waiting, a delay in care where patients are stuck, often between the emergency room and the next step in treatment. These stories will paint a clear picture of why boarding is not, in fact, a surprising outcome for patients experiencing a mental health emergency. While we wait for solutions and while patients in crisis wait for help, let's take the time to unpack the reasons for why this is happening. In today's episode, we will explore different models for crisis response and the people who are first on scene, including law enforcement, EMTs, and social workers. These individuals decide the direction of care, and they might even point us to a solution or two on our path to solving the boarding crisis. Please note that in this episode, we discuss a case of police brutality, which may be disturbing to some listeners. Our first first responder is Dr. Tom Dunn. He's a neuropsychology professor at the University of Northern Colorado and a licensed clinical psychologist at the Denver Health Medical Center. On top of all of that, he somehow manages to dedicate his time to working as a paramedic for the county. So I have a long history working in healthcare. I became an emergency medical technician when I was uh, 18 years old. Along the time, what I've realized is Probably a third of our calls have to do with either somebody living with mental illness or misusing substances. Dr. Dunn described that some of the most common behavioral health emergencies that paramedics run into involved suicidal ideation, forms of aggression, self-inflicted wounds, mania, or severe depression, which often manifests as alcohol overdose. But what we really wanted to know from Dr. Dunn is what goes through the mind of a first responder when they encounter someone with a behavioral health concern in the field. There was a time in my career, and I think this is what I was taught, but it's also the style, that if you encountered somebody who was severely intoxicated, you, you don't want them to leave. You don't want them to go because the danger is they may go run into traffic. Well, at what point am I on the hook for their decisions while they're misusing substances? Yes, there's a theoretical risk that they may walk into traffic. There's a theoretical risk they may bounce a check. Now, am I on the hook for them bouncing a check? And I mean that by engaging in a behavior that may may cause them problems later. If Dr. Dunn chooses to engage in a behavior, let's say inject the patient with a sedative or force them into restraints, 
then there may be consequences to that decision later down the line. We know from a number of studies that although the use of restraints and sedatives may seem like the fastest way to calm someone down, it often does more harm than good. In fact, patients who are restrained in the field often end up boarding for longer periods of time in the hospital. So a first responder has to ask himself, is this a theoretical risk or is this a real risk? Because responding inappropriately to a theoretical risk has real consequences, like in the case of Elijah McLean. Elijah McLean was a 23-year-old Black man from Aurora, Colorado, who was walking home from a convenience store when the police department received a call about a person who looked sketchy wearing a ski mask. He has a mask on. He looks sketchy. He might be a good person or a bad person. Yeah. He has a mask on. Okay. Were any weapons involved or mentioned? No. Okay. McLean had committed no crime but he was tackled to the ground by police officers and placed in a carotid hold, which cuts blood supply to the brain. You come out? There's footage of the entire scene, but we've chosen to omit a lot of it out of respect for Elijah and his family. In the audio, you hear Elijah plead for his life repeatedly, and after being placed in a carotid hold twice, he vomits repeatedly and comes in and out of consciousness. Later, paramedics arrived and injected McLean with a high dose of ketamine sedative. So when the ambulance gets here, we're going to go ahead and give him some ketamine. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. McLean's pulse stopped at the scene, and he was transported to the hospital where he died days later after being declared brain dead. He just cored. Are you serious? Yeah. Two years later, the officers and paramedics involved were indicted on 32 criminal counts for their reckless behavior at the scene. Sources say this is the first time they've heard of paramedics facing charges for injecting someone with ketamine. I have been saying from the longest time that the paramedics were actually accomplices to my son's murder. I think it's a historic moment, right? It's not just the officers. The paramedics had their own obligation to act according to their profession and make independent medical evaluations. During our interview, Dr. Dunn was adamant that if the 911 call had been coded to send an ambulance first instead of the police, Elijah McLean may still be alive today. His wrongful death, along with the deaths of many others, have raised questions about our crisis response system, especially when the emergencies relate to behavior or people who are labeled outside the norm. There are alternative models to crisis response, and these models aren't new. In fact, they're decades old. So the traditional approach is to just send law enforcement officers to the scene of the call. But in the late 1980s, two different cities pioneered a new approach. The first model was initiated by the Memphis Police Department and is called CIT, which stands for Crisis Intervention Team. Police officers volunteer to join the CIT program and are then trained by mental health and addiction professionals so that they can better recognize the signs and symptoms of mental illness, de-escalate the situation, and assess how best to connect that individual to health. Dr. Dunn explains what it all boils down to. And really a lot of it is, how can I help this person? And sometimes it's, it's admission to a psychiatric unit. Sometimes it's stepping them down to community resources. Or sometimes it's saying, 
this person's having a completely typical reaction to an atypical situation. If they're not depressed, they're sad. They're sad because they're in the hospital and they've lost a loved one in a crash. So sometimes it's being able to say, I don't think this is mental illness. If a CIT officer or a mental health professional had responded to that fatal 911 call that ended Elijah McLean's life, they may have recognized that Elijah McLean was not, in fact, experiencing an acute mental illness and that his behavior was neither criminal nor dangerous. Even with better trained law enforcement officers, there is a deep-seated fear of police involvement, especially within communities of color. We know that communities of color face higher levels of police brutality, and that fear is real. Remember Karen Broadhurst from episode one? She had shared her added fear of calling 911, knowing that her son, who is also Black, may be mistreated while in an agitated state during his mental health crisis. CIT is a much-needed program because police officers will inevitably run into calls involving some form of agitation or behavioral health crisis. Since the 60s, when mental health institutions started closing down, law enforcement officers have largely been left to handle the patients left behind. Historically, interactions between police officers and individuals with mental illness often lead to arrest instead of treatment. But CIT is not the only approach to improving the behavioral health crisis. There's another model that we haven't covered, and it's an idea worth $15 million. The program is called CAHOOTS, which stands for Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets. It's a 30-year-old service that sends a mental health professional and EMT, rather than a police officer, to people experiencing any behavioral health distress like intoxication, mental illness, or disorientation. The American Rescue Plan of 2021 has put aside $15 million to fund more mobile crisis response teams like CAHOOTS around the nation. In the city of Eugene, CAHOOTS gets 2% of the police budget and handles nearly 20% of public safety calls. The model has proven so effective that other programs have been modeled off of it, like the STAR program in Denver, Colorado. STAR is a game changer in Denver, and all that local paramedic Dr. Dunn, explain why. Often, because of boarding and other issues, I'm already limited to where I can take that patient because a lot of hospitals will do things called psych advisory or psych divert. We're not taking psych patients. They have decided that they are going to say no to a psych patient coming into the hospital by ambulance. Now, if I can get that person into my star unit or star van, they can go anywhere. So they can go to a crisis stabilization unit. They can go to a facility outside of where I can deliver somebody. Maybe it's our social detox center. So there's a lot more latitude that they can do. A 911 ambulance is limited to taking the patient to the hospital, but a star van can escort that patient to other health clinics and crisis centers in the community. Dr. Dunn also mentioned diversion advisories, which are a common obstacle in the field. But by far, the most common advisory is psych. And what that means is we're driving patients further. They are getting further and further away from the healthcare systems they usually engage. And then those hospitals that are not on psych divert, then they close pretty fast because everybody's going to them. Now you're causing a problem in other parts of the system. 
hospitals may be on psych advisory because they simply don't have the capacity to treat patients. You can think of this like how hospitals had to issue an ICU advisory during the COVID-19 pandemic when all the beds were full. One of the things that's happened is it used to be every hospital kind of had a psych unit. And then all of a sudden, those, those psych units started getting closed. And then I, I've seen the pendulum start to swing the other way, and it's all about throughput in the ER, is we now have hospitals are saying, we need to open a behavioral health unit because these people are jamming and clogging our emergency departments. Like we discussed in episode two, there's often little to no psychiatric treatment in the emergency department, especially when the ED is overwhelmed with boarding. So in a way, treatment for a behavioral health emergency really starts at the scene of the crisis. EMTs and paramedics are crucial to delivering that first dose of treatment, which sometimes isn't medicine. It's de-escalation. First responders use a combination of verbal de-escalation techniques, followed potentially by medication or safety restraints, to build a therapeutic alliance with the patient. We want to be able to go in and lower the temperature of the call. I think some individuals are better at that than others. And I also think that's something that you have to regularly train to do. So right now, for me to be certified as a paramedic, I also have to be certified with Advanced Cardiac Life Support, ACLS. And that's sort of the standard. The standard for an EMT basic is basic life support. That's the CPR card. And so what I want is to have an advanced psychiatric life support class that it is required if you are going to be a paramedic, you go through a class and that we teach you all of these things. We teach you how to deescalate. We teach you why you should use a benzodiazepine rather than a neuroleptic. We teach you about verbal deescalation. We teach you about how common psych conditions present, how to differentiate. This looks like delirium. This looks like alcohol intoxication. This looks like methamphetamine intoxication. This is mania. This is decompensated psychosis. Psychiatric advanced life support certification doesn't exist, but maybe it should. Conducting a health assessment to get to the root of the crisis requires knowing all the possibilities, including mental health. It's about having the right training and the right first responders ready to answer the call. So we've talked about first responders on the ground, but what about first responders behind the phone? who literally answered the call. To learn more about that, we called on Anthony Hall, the former director of the Community Response Team at DC's Department of Behavioral Health. His main message to us was that you can't do crisis response work without first building trust in the community. Oftentimes, the best way to manage a crisis is to prevent it from happening in the first place. So the ability to kind of explain these things exist and here's how you access them is what builds that trust. The Community Response Team, or CRT, is a 24-7 direct service team staffed by a diverse group of social workers and behavioral health specialists. You call 202-673-6495 to get in touch. But the problem Hall ran into was that people didn't always know when to call. Some wondered whether their situation really measured up to a crisis level. The CRT program was first established in 2019. And at the time, the C originally stood for crisis. But to help normalize the use of behavioral health services, Director Hall changed the C to stand for community. The CRT does a lot of work in the community. They're on the phone, getting people connected with behavioral health providers. 
They're helping train police officers at the academy. They're figuring out how to handle co-occurring problems like a health crisis on top of a housing crisis. And they're showing up for the community, whether that's at local vigils or celebrations. In Social Work 101, meet them where they're at versus saying, this is what we do. This is how we do it. We're going to do what it is that we do. The reality is that we are at a very unique time in history where just a lot of things are intersecting, you know, things like the defund police movement, really challenging notions of institutional racism, having a better understanding universally of what behavioral health looks like, the opioid crisis, like all of these things came to a head, which has driven interest in supporting behavioral health and thinking about ways that we can be better integrated into systems. It's clear that we need to build and fund more robust, culturally competent behavioral health crisis teams in communities across the nation. By the time you listen to this podcast, a new health policy initiative will likely go into effect. The United States will start using 988 as a three-digit code for a national suicide prevention hotline. This is one big step of many that comes from programs like CRT, STAR, CAHOOTS, and CIT to get people connected to the care they need. So if you're a mental health provider, your outgoing voicemail shouldn't just say call 911. It should say call 911 and ask for an ambulance. Or maybe call 988. Or here's a number for your local community response team. If you're a mental health provider, we need you to partner with your local fire department, your local ambulance service, your local police department. How can you lend your expertise to first responders who need the extra support and training? If you're in the public policy world, how is it that you can look for ways to make the interface between crisis response and mental health better funded so that we can come up with better solutions? That's all for this episode of While We Wait. Join us next week as we head back to the emergency department, but this time you'll hardly recognize it. This episode was created by Avni Kulkarni and me with theme music from Tommy Scanlon. A special thanks to Jeff Byers, Sarah Kolk, and Patty Sweet for their guidance throughout the series. If you would like to learn more about any of the topics we covered in this episode, please check out our show notes for links to more resources and ways to get involved.